This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. The Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, meeting in Maryland, not far from Washington, with many of the speakers, including Republican members of Congress, criticizing Biden administration policies on immigration and the opioid crisis, COVID-19 policy, federal spending, to the role of big technology companies and free speech and relations with China. Coming up, we'll hear some of the speeches and talk about the conference with Washington Examiner Politics Editor Jim Antle, specifically what big names in the Republican Party are attending and are not attending, and the influence of CPAC. President Joe Biden meeting with Senate Democrats on Capitol Hill, talking about their party's agenda, and some news that the president will not veto a bill expected to pass both houses of Congress that would block changes to the Washington, D.C. criminal code. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting briefly in person with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine just over a year ago. The meeting was on the sidelines of a foreign minister's conference in India. White House unveils a national cybersecurity strategy. It includes putting more responsibility for cyber safety on software companies rather than individuals and businesses. We'll hear from the acting national cyber director about what's in it. And today is Texas Independence Day. Some thoughts from a couple of members of Congress from Texas. Now to the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, being held at National Harbor, Maryland, just down the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. ABC News writes that CPAC touts itself as the largest and most influential gathering of conservatives in the world, but its attendance list this year and the presidential hopefuls staying away reflects instead a broader reckoning over the Republican Party's future. The gathering, a longtime window into the grassroots of the Republican Party in recent years, has morphed into a prominent stage for allies of former President Donald Trump and is anticipated to heavily promote his platform this week. Well, today there were plenty of Republican members of the House and Senate speaking. Here are Congresswomen Kat Kamek of Florida and Maggie Hagerman of Wyoming, members of the new House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the federal government. When you look at what has happened, even just in the last few years, I mean, you could go back decades, but you look at what's happened in the last couple of years, you have the DOJ, the Department of Justice, calling parents that are concerned about what their kids are being taught, they're labeling them terrorists. You have an FBI that is now taking orders in the field offices from the central office, not based on facts, not based on investigation, but actually taking political marching orders. We are seeing it through the IRS. We're seeing it through the USDA. Every federal agency today is both literally being weaponized through the collection and housing of ammunition and ballistic materials, but also turning that counterterrorism effort that has been happening for years, they're turning it inward on Americans. It's wrong, it has to stop, because this is our government not their government. That's right. 
sunshine is the best disinfectant. And the reality is, is that these agencies believe that they're now in charge. Yeah. It's something that I've been talking about for well over 20 years, that we're losing our constitutional foundation. We are a republic. We are a representative form of government. Kat and I, as congresswomen, are answerable to our constituents. We're answerable to the citizens of this country. This country is of, by, and for the people. And what has happened is that since the late 1930s, but especially since the Clinton administration, we have weaponized the federal government against the citizens of this country. We've stockpiled more and more power in Washington, D.C., and we've laundered more and more money through Washington, D.C., and it has now become probably the biggest business, really, in the United States is the federal government. And these agencies have decided uh, that there are, they're, they're going to pick winners and losers. And right now, the conservatives and Republicans and parents are the targets of, of these folks, and uh, we need to ferret it out. We need to expose it. We need to be passing laws to stop it, and we need to make sure that this nonsense never happens again. Member of Congress Harriet Hageman, Republican from Wyoming, and before that, Kat Kamick, Republican from Florida, today at CPAC Conservative Political Action Conference. More from the ABC News article on this CPAC meeting concerning the conference chair, Matt Schlapp. They write, a former staffer to Herschel Walker's 2022 Senate bid has alleged that Matt Schlapp groped and fondled his crotch while he was driving Matt Schlapp back from a bar in Atlanta. According to a report from the Daily Beast, the staffer also filed a lawsuit against Matt Schlapp and his wife Mercedes, seeking $9.4 million for sexual battery and defamation, according to a report. A statement from Matt Schlapp's attorney at the time said the complaint is false and the Schlapps and their legal team are assessing counter lawsuit options. Another speaker at today's conference, Senator John Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana. I do not hate anyone. I look for grace wherever I can find it. So I say this gently. The Biden administration sucks. You measure it any way you want. COVID, the economy, inflation, the national debt, the border, crime, cancel culture, treating parents like domestic terrorists, Afghanistan, our energy independence, now lost. My God. President Biden has been spectacularly awful. If you put President Biden in charge of the Sahara Desert, he would run out of sand. If the aliens landed in Washington, D.C. tomorrow and said, take me to your leader, it would be embarrassing. The truth is that the best social program is a job. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the best way to get back on your feet is to get off your ass. The truth is, the truth is that if you worked hard and earned it, you should get to keep most of it. Why? Because you earned it. Congress, look, Congress does not run deficits because it taxes too little. Congress runs deficits because it spends too much. The truth is, 
The truth is that all life is precious. All life. And shame on those who celebrate, actually celebrate abortion. The truth is that the Republican Party, I'm very proud of this, is the party of parents. Because we understand, we understand that if you don't love your children, your children won't stop loving you. Your children will stop loving themselves. The truth is that we should have an election day, not an election month. The truth is that illegal immigration is illegal. <laughs> Duh. Now, unless you peaked in high school, you know that. Why doesn't President Biden? The truth is that if gun control laws worked, Chicago would be Mayberry. <laughs> Instead, it is the world's largest outdoor shooting range. Senator John Kennedy, Republican from Louisiana. With more on the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, we're joined on the phone by Jim Antle, politics editor with The Washington Examiner. Thank you so much for being here. So I guess the big story is always who shows up and who skips it. What is the lineup right. this year, and what does it say about the continuing influence of CPAC? So the Republican presidential field is still in its embryonic stages, but you have all of the declared candidates are there, headlined by former President Donald Trump, who began his interactions with the conservative movement through CPAC, uh, you know, over a decade ago. And uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is also going to be there. But there are a lot of people who are presumed to be running who haven't declared yet, who are not there. And the biggest name in that field is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And the absence of Ron DeSantis, one, makes people wonder a little bit about whether CPAC is as influential as it has been in the past. And two, uh, what kind of conclusions can we draw about uh, you know, Trump's response there if we don't have DeSantis, the other big polling candidate, really to compare him to? You wrote an article this morning about five things to watch at CPAC, and number one was, can former President Trump take advantage of having the stage largely to himself? And number right. two, can Nikki Haley break out? You mentioned those two. The other ones, though, who will win the CPAC uh, straw poll? Uh, and that is determined by who's actually there. So who is actually in the audience? So it's a big gathering of conservative activists, and what we've seen happen in the past is that a lot of campaigns, when they're tr competing and trying to win the straw poll, will bus in their supporters. And, and, you know, straw polls aren't scientific. So the two things that they really measure are grassroots enthusiasm and some degree of basic organizational competence by uh, a candidate or campaign. So, you know, can you actually get your people to show up at something like this? Uh, you know, and that in the early phases of the 2024 race isn't nothing. It doesn't look at the moment like there's a particularly well-orchestrated effort by anybody to sort of bring in their supporters to CPAC, maybe because the presumption is that Trump as the big name speaker has a built-in advantage. 
Uh, but that's definitely been uh, a real competition in the past. I mean, there was times when Mitt Romney and, and Ron Paul uh, were both working very hard uh, to win the, the straw poll and, and, and competing in terms of busing in their supporters. So, you know, if it isn't quite as organized, uh, then it, it really may end up being more of a test of who organically has the most support. And it'd be interesting to see what kind of support Ron DeSantis registers if he's not speaking there. We're talking with Jim Antle, politics editor with the Washington Examiner. The two other questions from your article this morning. One is, does the red wave receding dampen enthusiasm? And what will be the big controversy this year? Why did you include those two? Well, one, Republicans are in a certain mood because they expected that they would win the midterm elections by a much more impressive margin than they did. Uh, You know, they didn't take the Senate. They actually lost a seat. They only really gained nine House seats, although that was certainly good enough for the majority. Uh, But they really underperformed. So does that mean that they are going to be depressed? Does that mean that they're going to be hungrier to win next time? Is that going to affect the tenor of events at CPAC really at all? Uh, which, you know, I think is an open question. And then obviously every year uh, there are some kind of uh, controversy. So is is the controversy someone who's not allowed to speak at CPAC? You know, gay Republican groups in the past have had some difficulty getting, you know, exhibit booths and things like that. Uh, or is the controversy somebody who does speak? You know, Mike Lindell, uh, the pillow man, who's very active and outspoken on, on uh, 2020, election skepticism, you know, he's going to be there. Former Brazilian President Bolsonaro, who's in a similar sort of stop the steal moment in the Brazilian presidential election, are the presence of such people, particularly in the aftermath of things like January 6th, going to be controversial and detract from the message that CPAC wants to send out more broadly? And that's something I think bears watching. A final question, who's in charge of CPAC and how much influence does former President Donald Trump have? Like in the case of the Republican National Committee, he he worked to take over that organization. He's done the same thing with CPAC. Right. Well, because CPAC is much more activist driven, you don't necessarily have to do the same things in terms of like winning elections on the committee and and things like that, uh, you know, to have an influence. So, you know, when George W. Bush was was, uh, you know, the, 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 the guy in the Republican Party, he was pretty popular at CPAC. Uh, Ronald Reagan, obviously, star of CPAC for decades. Uh, the American Conservative Union, a conservative organization, runs it. Uh, that, in turn, is run by Matt Schlapp, whose wife, Mercedes, worked in the Trump White House in a communications role. Uh, and they are seen as being, at this point, fairly close to Trump. Uh, and so some wonder to what degree uh, the event will be sort of skewed toward Trump. And that, in turn, may be a reason why some non-Trump candidates are staying away. Jim Antle, politics editor with the Washington Examiner. Find the stories at WashingtonExaminer.com and on Twitter at Jim Antle. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And the C-SPAN networks, including C-SPAN Radio, have been covering CPAC speeches. We archive all the video at cspan.org. And our live coverage continues Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. The scheduled speakers include Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, Nikki Haley, 2024 Republican presidential candidate and Donald Trump Jr., one of the children of the former president. 
that will be on C-SPAN Radio. You can also watch on C-SPAN TV and our free mobile app, C-SPAN Now, or online at cspan.org. President Biden traveling to the U.S. Capitol today to meet with Senate Democrats during their regular Thursday private lunch. And this comes after last night's trip he made to Baltimore, where House Democrats are holding an issues retreat to talk with them about the Democratic Party agenda. Politico describing Wednesday night's speech as a victory lap with one clear message, let's tout our legislative wins. And he listed off all their accomplishments in the 117th Congress when Democrats held both chambers. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York today, saying much the same thing on the Senate floor as he previewed the president's visit. Later today, Senate Democrats will welcome President Biden to the Capitol for a special caucus lunch to talk about our agenda for the 118th Congress. I predict that today's conversation will re-emphasize a couple of important points. Unlike the other party, Democrats are united. We have a great story to tell about our work over the last two years. And we are ready to keep working in a bipartisan way to make life better for the American people. In the last two years, if the last two years focused on getting our agenda passed into law, one of the focuses of our lunch will be on how the next two years will be about implementing that agenda. Legislation must and will continue, but implementation will also be a top priority. Democrats are making sure that Americans see our agenda, see our agenda in their own backyards, on their way to work, and when they balance their checkbooks. Americans will see our agenda as the roads and bridges and highways they use every day finally get the fixes that are so needed. And Americans will see our agenda in action as manufacturing, good-paying manufacturing jobs, high-end jobs, returns to our shore as new innovations get developed here at home. We'll also talk with President Biden about one of the most important priorities that defines our party, building ladders to help people get into the middle class and helping people who are already in the middle class stay there. We'll continue protecting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid from the hard right. We'll keep investing in infrastructure jobs and good-paying union jobs. And and we will hold abusive corporations accountable for putting profits over people's safety. We'll also be going to make sure that once people make it into the middle class, they have the tools to stay in the middle class. That's precisely the reasoning behind our work on IRA, on chips, and on science, on pushing for student debt relief and increasing Pell Grants, and so much more. I expect we'll also discuss how we'll keep Americans safe and keep democracy alive in the 21st century. One year into Putin's violent assault on Ukraine, the support for Ukraine will hold firm. And that, praise God, has been very bipartisan. Leader McConnell and I are united in that regard. So we'll focus on taking an all-of-the-above approach to outcompete President Xi and the Chinese Communist Party. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, on the Senate floor Thursday morning. And then later, early afternoon, President Biden did come up to Capitol Hill, met with the Democratic senators during their lunch, And after that, Senator Schumer and the president spoke to reporters in the hallway for about a minute. We had a great meeting.
talked about implementing the great accomplishments of the President in the last two years. We believe we can get a lot of good bipartisan stuff done in these two years. We are filled with unity, optimism, and optimism about 2024. <laughs> <laughs> I've spoken with every official in Ohio, Democrat and Republican, on a continuous basis, as in Pennsylvania. I laid out a little bit in there what I think the answers are. We put it together, and we will be implementing an awful lot into the legislation here, and I will be on the some. President Biden and the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in the U.S. Capitol building after that closed-door meeting during the lunch with the Senate Democratic Caucus. At this point, they did walk away, even as reporters shouted some more questions. Various news outlets reporting that President Biden told the Senate Democrats that he would not veto a measure designed to undo changes of the Washington, D.C. criminal code. All of these reports citing anonymous sources familiar with the matter. The U.S. House voted last month to pass a resolution to block revisions of the D.C. criminal code recently approved by the D.C. Council. And that bill is expected to also pass the Senate with at least a couple of Democrats joining the Republicans in voting yes. The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre asked about it back at the White House during her regular news conference. Two minutes ago, regarding the D.C. Home Rule, saying he would sign the resolutions that they may pass the Senate to overturn the, the changes to D.C.'s criminal code. Uh, the president has spoken a bit about his support for D.C. State in the past, but you know, why does he believe that he uh, should step in where the D.C. where the, the residents of D.C.'s elected representatives, you know, pass these changes? Uh, why does he believe that his he should substitute his wisdom and judgment for theirs? So look, I mean, just to double down and triple down on what the president has said for decades, which is that uh, he believes every every city uh, should have their the right to self-government. <clears throat> that is still is the same case that hasn't uh, that hasn't changed anything. He has long believed that D.C. statehood uh, should be uh, something that the residents of D.C. should be allowed. Uh, again, that hasn't changed. But this is different. The way that we see this is uh, it's very different. This is uh, the D.C. Council put changes forward over the mayor's objections, and the president doesn't support changes like lowering penalties for carjacking. So this piece is different. But again, it doesn't change the administration strongly supporting H.R. 50. Uh, which would have made uh, D.C. the 51st state. Uh, that is something that he still very much uh, supports. Uh, and we're going to continue to call on, on Congress uh, to provide a swift and orderly transition to statehood for the uh, people who live here in, in D.C. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, getting a reporter's question today in the White House briefing room. As noted, the Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser opposed the criminal code changes passed by the city council, but her veto was overridden. The D.C. criminal code has not been revised since it was first drafted in 1901. But still, Mayor Bowser has called on Congress not to interfere in D.C.'s sovereignty. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre also asked today about what President Biden said last night to House Democrats meeting in Baltimore when he was talking about Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, and a mother whose children were killed by fentanyl poisoning. 
about a moment in the president's speech last night in Baltimore. Uh, he was talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and he mentioned a mother that had lost two of her sons to fentanyl. He said the interesting thing is that the fentanyl they took came during the last administration and then he seemed to laugh. Um, the mother's demanding an apology and I'm wondering if he regretted how that came out. So, you know, I want to be very careful here because this involves um, a mom, as you just stated, who lost two sons. And when it comes to this president, I believe the American people knows who he is fundamentally because he's been around for some time and they have watched him go through grief. They have watched him deal with really personal loss. And um, so this is a president that understands that. Uh, he expressed sympathy for her last night um, and uh, his heart goes out to uh, any person any person who has to go through that type of uh, trauma, that type of hurt. Uh, I will say uh, his words are, are being mischaracterized uh, by, uh, by someone who is regularly discredited um, for, uh, for things that she says that are really conspiracy theories. And those lies are being parroted by a certain network. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just leave it there. I'll, I'll, I'll say one more thing, is that uh, conservative parents on fentanyl, of fentanyl victims have been very clear. They have blasted uh, uh, the Congresswoman for these dishonest kinds of statements and kinds of attacks. Uh, but again, our hearts go out to anyone who loses, uh, who loses a person that they love. And this is something that you've heard from this president uh, over and over again when, when that has occurred and has been presented to him. The White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, with reporters in the White House briefing room. And this is Washington Today. Nearly three years after criminals first set their sights on the government's generous coronavirus aid programs, reports the Washington Post, President Biden on Thursday called on Congress to approve $1.6 billion to combat fraud, hoping to empower federal prosecutors and prevent such historic theft from targeting taxpayer funds again. The new request foreshadows the years of costly and complicated work now ahead in Washington after malicious actors took aim at the more than $5 trillion that lawmakers intended for workers, families, and businesses amid the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. That reporting from the Washington Post. Two days ago, the House Ways and Means Committee approved a bill designed to recover what the committee says is hundreds of billions of dollars of COVID unemployment insurance payments stolen by fraud. The committee chair, Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, said at that committee meeting on Tuesday that the president and congressional Democrats should have been doing this a long time ago. Unemployment fraud is not a victimless crime. At a time when Americans were at their most vulnerable, criminals stole their weekly benefits and identities. Republicans worked for more than two years to protect this program from criminals who exploited it for their own gain. We made two requests for oversight hearings, introduce legislation to provide us with the incentives and tools to fight fraud. We introduced multiple amendments in this committee to add common sense safeguards, tried to get the Department of Labor to respond to our request. All of that was ignored, blocked, and shut down by Democrats in the majority. Only five billion of the potentially 400 billion has been recovered. Meanwhile, the Biden administration official responsible for prosecuting fraud has resigned and the position sits vacant to this day. 
After two years of raising the alarm, House Republicans are turning on the lights about the greatest theft of taxpayer dollars in American history. The American people expect the Biden administration and Congress to aggressively pursue the criminals who defrauded our constituents. We have a responsibility to use every tool at our disposal to recover that money and leave, leave no stone unturned in the process. Congressman Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, chair of the Ways and Means Committee at a committee meeting on Tuesday. And today, the Biden administration pledging $1.6 billion to increase law enforcement and implement new programs to be used to prosecute scammers and prevent fraud and provide assistance to victims of identity theft from the COVID-19 aid funds. On Wall Street, the Dow up 341, NASDAQ up 83, S&P up 29. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, which you can get as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov met and spoke face-to-face today for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine just over a year ago. It happened in Delhi, India, on the sidelines of the Group of 20 Nations Foreign Ministers meeting. New York Times reports that the meeting between the two ministers was brief, and it came as the Russian government used the G20 meeting to lash out at calls to end its invasion, accusing Western nations of blackmail and threats. Secretary Blinken later held a news conference and talked about what the two had talked about. I spoke briefly with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, on the margins of our G20 meeting today. I urged Russia to reverse its irresponsible decision and return to implementing the New START Treaty, which places verifiable limits on the nuclear arsenals of the United States and the Russian Federation. Mutual compliance is in the interest of both our countries. It's also what people around the world expect from us as nuclear powers. I told the foreign minister that no matter what else is happening in the world or in our relationship, the United States will always be ready to engage and act on strategic arms control, just as the United States and the Soviet Union did even at the height of the Cold War. I also raised the wrongful detention of Paul Whelan, as I have on many previous occasions. The United States has put forward a serious proposal. Moscow should accept it. We're determined to bring Paul and every other American citizen who is unjustly detained around the world home. We won't rest until we do. Finally, uh, I told the foreign minister uh, what I and so many others said last week at the United Nations and what so many G20 foreign ministers said today. End this war of aggression. Engage in meaningful diplomacy that can produce a just and durable peace. President Zelensky has put forward a 10-point plan for a just and durable peace. The United States stand ready to support Ukraine through diplomacy to end the war on this basis. President Putin, however, has demonstrated zero interest in engaging, saying there's nothing to even talk about unless and until Ukraine accepts, and I quote, the new territorial realities, while doubling down on his brutalization of Ukraine. Independent of what Russia does, we showed here in Delhi what we will do, deliver results on the problems most affecting our people's lives. Our hosts are committed to doing this over the course of their G20 presidency. For that, and for their leadership and hospitality, I'd like to close by expressing my gratitude to India. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken today in India, a news conference during the G20 ministerial meeting. G20 is a group of 20 comprised of the 19 nations of the world with the largest economies plus the European Union. This from the Associated Press, Russian Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov, who did not mention speaking with Secretary Blinken when he held a news conference after the G20 session, told reporters that Moscow would continue to press its action in Ukraine. He shrugged off Western claims of Russia's isolation, saying we aren't feeling isolated. It's the West that has isolated itself and it will eventually come to realize it. He said Russia remains open to talks on ending the conflict in Ukraine, but he accused the West of effectively blocking such talks. Another Associated Press story, the Kremlin on Thursday accused Ukrainian saboteurs of crossing into western Russia and firing on villagers. Ukraine denied the claim and warned that Moscow could use the allegations to justify stepping up its own attacks in the ongoing war. Russian President Vladimir Putin blamed Ukrainian terrorists for an incursion, claiming they deliberately targeted civilians, including children, in yet another terror attack, another crime. That from AP. Questions about that today at the Pentagon briefing with Press Secretary Pat Ryder. Does the U.S. believe that Ukraine is responsible for any of the recent over-border into Russia skirmishes, uh, including in um, the Bryansk region, as well as some of the drone attacks uh, last week? And if not, who does the U.S. believe is responsible for these attacks? Yeah, so... um Seen the press reports uh, in terms of Ukrainian operations, I'd, I'd refer you to them to talk about their operations. Does the U.S. believe that anyone other than Ukraine is doing them? Again, I'd refer you to Ukraine to talk about their operations. Have you I can't. I cannot corroborate those reports uh, in terms of uh, of what we've seen in the press. Uh, but yeah. Have you seen any indications that Russia is doing it themselves? Again, I. I don't have any information to corroborate either way on that. Thank you. Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder, who is also an Air Force Brigadier General, with reporters in the Pentagon briefing room today. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the Western nation's response also expected to be a topic on Friday when the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz comes to Washington to meet with President Biden. A Russian cosmonaut is among the crew of the SpaceX mission to the International Space Station that launched last night from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. There are also two Americans and one Emirati on board. NASA has continued its cooperation with Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, even as relations between the countries have been strained. In a post-launch news conference, NASA Associate Administrator Kathy Luters asked about the future of this cooperation. We currently have an agreement with Roscosmos for one crew rotation mission a year on SpaceX. We're actually in the process of updating that to add the Crew 7 mission this fall and working that through the um, Russian government and then back through, obviously, our side of um, and to get final agreement. But... um, that's our that's our goal is to get is to be able to then support um, integrated crews and we've talked a lot I know you guys have heard from us a lot about why we feel like integrated crews are important for us to maintain the best logistic support to the ISS and so um, with the addition of the crew 7 agreement we would have coverage for crew 7 and crew 8 and eventually at, at some point when we have gone through 
uh, our accrued flight test with Boeing and an initial P PCM-1 test. Our PCM-1 mission, um, we would be looking at also adding Boeing to an integrated crew agreement. We would like to continue that every single crew rotation mission has integrated crew on it to make sure that we have at least one USOS and one uh, Roscosmos cosmonaut on it to ensure that we've got coverage for both sides of the segment on every single vehicle. The NASA Associate Administrator Kathy Luters at a news conference at Kennedy Space Center in Florida after last night's SpaceX Crew-6 launch. That's the last of the original six missions that the private SpaceX company was awarded by NASA. This from CBS News. The White House has unveiled a national cybersecurity strategy calling for comprehensive regulation of the nation's vital services, acknowledging in a 38-page blueprint that reliance on voluntary cybersecurity measures has stopped short of preventing billions in economic losses following a spike in ransomware attacks as well as inadequate and inconsistent outcomes across critical infrastructure like energy pipelines, food companies, schools, and hospitals. CBS article continues, new framework led by the Office of the National Cyber Director in the White House calls out China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea for aggressive cyber tactics, exhibiting reckless disregard for the rule of law and elevates ransomware attacks to issues of national security. Kemba Walden is the acting National Cyber Director. She spoke today about this strategy at CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And one of the key elements, shifting the burden of enhancing security to the software developers. We need to rebalance the responsibility for managing cyber risk. Rethink whom we're asking to keep all of us secure. Today, across the public and private sectors, we tend to devolve responsibility for cyber risks downward. We ask individuals, small businesses, and local governments to shoulder a significant burden for defending us all. We ask my mom and my kids to be vigilant against clicking on malicious links. We expect school districts to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with transnational criminal organizations largely by themselves. This isn't just unfair, it's ineffective. The biggest and most capable and best positioned actors in our digital ecosystem can and should shoulder a greater share of the burden for managing cyber risk and keeping us all safe. And that includes the federal government. We must do a better job of leading by example, defending our own systems and sharing relevant and timely information with the private sector. But we expect that same leadership from industry too. That includes cloud service providers and other internet infrastructure companies, the developers of software, the manufacturers of hardware, and other key players in our technology ecosystem. We need to step up and work shoulder to shoulder together. Every American should be able to benefit from the benefits of cyberspace, but every American should not have the same responsibility to keep us all secure. Simply shifting the burden for security, though, won't solve all of our problems if we don't start thinking in terms of long-term solutions. It's not enough to manage the threats of today. We need to make tomorrow more inherently defensible and resilient. I know how tempting it can be to focus on short-term fixes, whether we're government policymakers, industry leaders, or just average Americans try to make smart decisions online. We face very real near-term risks, legal requirements, and commercial incentives. 
But if tomorrow we were to wake up having perfected our current means of cyber defense, we would at best be losing more slowly. Instead, we need to change the underlining rules of the game to get ourselves the advantage. I want cybersecurity to be an unfair fight. To do that, we need to make it so that when public and private sector entities face trade-offs between easy but temporary fixes and harder solutions that will stand the test of time, they have the incentives they need to consistently choose the latter. Kemba Walden, Acting National Cyber Director at CSIS today, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington on the unveiling of the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy. The story from BBC Persian, almost 700 girls have been poisoned by toxic gas in Iran since November in what many believe is a deliberate attempt to force their schools to shut. No girls have died, but dozens have suffered respiratory problems, nausea, dizziness, and fatigue. The prosecutor general announced last week that he was opening a criminal investigation. However, he said that the available information only indicated the possibility of criminal and premeditated acts. That reporting from BBC Persian. More on this at the White House briefing with John Kirby, spokesperson for the National Security Council. As many as 900 schoolgirls appear to have been poisoned in Iran. Does the U.S. have any information about what could be behind those poisonings? And if it was the government, is that something that could prompt American sanctions? It's uh, deeply concerning news uh, coming out of Iran. Uh, these, uh, uh, what, what could be the poisoning of, of young girls that are just going to school. And truth is, we don't know right now uh, what caused those ailments. Uh, we see reports that the Iranian government are investigating it. That's the right course of action. We want those investigations to be thorough and complete, and we want it to be transparent. Little girls going to school should only have to worry about learning. They shouldn't have to worry about their own physical safety, but we just don't know enough right now. Would the U.S. take the, that investigation at face value, or would you try and conduct let's your just own? Let's, let's, let's see what the results are here first before we make some kind of snap judgment. We don't really know what's going on with respect to these hundreds of, uh, of schoolgirls. Um, and uh, we, I think where the president is, we need to know. The world needs to know. Certainly the families of those little girls need to know. So let's... Let's see where it goes before we make some snap judgments, but obviously very deeply concerning reports. John Kirby is the Strategic Communications Director with the White House National Security Council with reporters today in the White House briefing room. A Reuters story says that these attacks come at a critical time for Iran's clerical rulers who faced months of anti-government protests sparked by the death of a young Iranian woman in the custody of the morality police who enforce strict dress codes. This is Washington Today. Israel's far-right finance minister's call for a Palestinian town to be erased, writes CNN, was harshly condemned by U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price on Wednesday, who described the comments as repugnant and irresponsible. Today, Ned Price was asked about a letter that Senator Peter Welch, Democrat from Vermont, gave to President Biden on U.S. policy on Israeli-Palestinian issues. Senator Peter Welch, who just got back from Akodel to Israel, delivered a letter to President Biden today urging him to take action to help improve relations amid the violence in the West Bank. In the letter, he said, as far as the Netanyahu government is concerned, the two-state solution is dead and is calling on the U.S. to acknowledge that and is calling Biden 
to take a more active role in the region, um, saying we have a choice, stand by passively as a withered two-state approach recedes into oblivion, or do our best to re-energize it with more assertive efforts to persuade the Netanyahu government. What is your response to this letter? Do you think that the posture should change amid the tension in the the West Bank? Um, Do you think the Biden should be taking a more proactive approach? A couple things on this. Uh, Number one, uh, we continue to believe deeply, as do Israelis and Palestinians uh, and people around the world, in a vision of a two-state solution, a negotiated two-state solution, a vision of two states for two peoples living side by side in peace and security. Uh, That is the vision that the United States has maintained over successive administrations. It is the vision that is consistent with Israel's identity as a uh, Jewish and democratic state. It is a vision that is consistent with the legitimate aspirations of the Palestinian people uh, to live in uh, freedom in a state of their own uh, and a state that is governed uh, by their elected uh, officials. Uh, There's no other formulation that we could envision uh, accomplishing uh, all of those goals. And all of those goals are important to us, but more importantly, they're important to Israelis uh, and Palestinians. Now, on the question of engagement, uh, I would note that we're hearing this uh, within some uh, 72 hours or so of senior American officials being on the ground with Israelis, with Palestinians, with Jordanians, with Egyptians. Uh, We're hearing this a couple weeks after the Secretary of State uh, was in Israel, was in the West Bank, was in Cairo. Uh, We're hearing this a few weeks, a month or so, after the National Security Advisor uh, was in Israel and the West Bank. State Department spokesperson Ned Price with reporters today in the State Department briefing room. Associated Press out of Jerusalem reporting that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his allies on Thursday denounced protesters as anarchists after they massed outside a Tel Aviv salon where his wife was getting her hair done, a chaotic end to a day of demonstrations against the government's plan to overhaul the judiciary. Today is Texas Independence Day. On this day in 1836, settlers declared independence from Mexico and created the Republic of Texas. Texas remained independent for nine years until being annexed by the United States in 1845, becoming the 28th state in the Union. And a congressman from Texas posting this video. Hello, I'm Congressman Vicente Gonzalez. Today we celebrate Texas' 187th birthday. On this day in 1836, the Republic of Texas was born. As a native Texan, I share an immense amount of pride at all Texas has accomplished and it's almost two centuries. The Lone Star State is one of the most diverse states in the country and continues to be an economic powerhouse around the world. From energy to agriculture to growing technology and space exploration and rich culture, Texas is certainly one of a kind. While there are many challenges that still lie ahead, our brightest days are still to come. I'm proud to be an American and blessed to be a Texan. Happy Texas Independence Day, y'all. Thank you, and God bless Texas. Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, Democrat, tweeting that video. Another congressman from Texas, Republican Chip Roy, spoke on the House floor on Wednesday about Texas Independence Day today. And Chip Roy tying the purpose of the holiday to some issues, immigration and border security. 
But what did they declare independence for? What did Travis and the rest of the Alamo sacrifice for? A federal government that opens our borders to cartels? A group of Republicans who campaign on securing the border, who run away in abject surrender, refusing to actually do it? That's the question before us right now. That's the question for every member of the Republican conference. I'm speaking to you. If you do not secure the border now, now, you are giving up any argument you have for the American people to put their faith in you. Will Republicans honor their campaign commitments to secure the border, yes or no? What I am seeing right now from my Republican colleagues does not give me faith that they will stand up in the breach as did those men who stood on the wall at the Alamo. I am tired of words. Things are going to change in this body. If my Republican colleagues believe that they're going to be moving through relatively meaningless provisions, doing precious damned little for the very people who sent us here to change things, and they think that some of us are just gonna go along for the ride, they are sorely mistaken. We will not. Congressman Chip Roy, Republican from Texas on the House floor on Wednesday, looking ahead to today, Texas Independence Day. House Ethics Committee has established an investigative subcommittee to look into issues surrounding Congressman George Santos, Republican from New York. The committee said the panel will look at whether Congressman Santos engaged in unlawful activity with respect to his 2022 congressional campaign, failed to properly disclose required information on statements filed with the House, violated federal conflict of interest laws in connection with his role in a firm providing fiduciary services, and or engaged in sexual misconduct towards an individual seeking employment in his congressional office. The Ethics Committee notes in a statement that creating an investigative subcommittee does not in and of itself indicate any violation occurred. Congressman Santos tweeting, The House Committee on Ethics has opened an investigation, and Congressman Santos is fully cooperating. There will be no further comment made at this time. Thanks for being with us today on Washington Today. To get more of the news being talked about in Washington, subscribe to C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.